You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Today we will be hearing from Alfie Brown. Where are my manners? Happy New Year. I hope you had a good one. Uh, it's We're sort of, what is it now? I'm recording this on the 6th, releasing it on the 8th. Are we still saying, we're still saying Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you all. I hope you had brilliant Christmases, fabulous New Year's. Thanks to those of you that came to the uh, the, the Christmas Megapod, and thanks to those that downloaded and enjoyed that. Uh, so let's crack on with the year. I had, to be honest, I had sort of thought I should probably have some new theme music to start the year off. And, you know, in much the same way as I thought I should do for episode 100. Didn't achieve either of them. Got a lot on. Uh, this is Alfie Brown, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, if you don't know him by now, you will when you've listened to this interview. That's how time works. Um, he's he's just great. Obviously, he's on the show. I think he's great. Um, and I think at one point I tell him quite early on in the interview, I tell him that I love him. I do love him. Uh, as you'll hear, he frustrates the hell out of me, though, um, but only because he's so excellent. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy this very much. This is the brilliant Alfie Brown. Let me give you some money for copies. It's from, this, no, no, this is from the, uh, this is from the podcasting uh, hospitality budget. And also you have a child. Thanks. <laughs> also, I'll exchange that for a beer later. I uh, I found out what you earn according to an interview that you did. Yeah. With Desso. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When was that? <laughs> it was depressingly recently. Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. really recently. That was um, that was in preparation for my Soho show that I did. Uh, yes. So very recently. How did you feel being asked what you earned? We started now. I didn't mean to. I was no, enjoying no, no, the catch-up no, no. chat. I could, I could tell that you'd started because you didn't respond so quickly and that you'd waited for me to sort of just embellish what I was saying without yeah, kind of monosyllable. It's, it's so hard to try and have a normal conversation. That's why I wanted to switch it on beforehand, so I try and no, get... No, that was a good little tactic. Try and I get used to it. very relaxed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> totally. now everything's but now it's changed. slightly more... The timbre of voices I know. Well, let's scrap this, because I'm not going to... I don't want to start and talk about your income. It's ridiculous. Um, and also... I really don't mind. This... I, thought, I thought it was quite interesting, because I, I, I was fine with the question, but nobody's meant to answer it seriously. Oh, is that right? Yeah, nobody's meant to answer it seriously. But so I, he asks that question and he, asks he just asked it. to everyone because the whole thing is rarely asked questions. <laughs> so it's quite a funny question to ask. Okay. Um, because, you know, I, I kind because of... Because he wants to trip people up. Yeah, because he, he wants people to go, oh, 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 go, oh, 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 go fuck yourself, Bruce. Um, and I went, well, you can know how much I earn. I don't mind. And I think, like, knowing what you earn as well as knowing who you vote for is one of those things that everybody gets incredibly bashful about. But 
Why? Yeah. Why, why, why does it? I don't mind if you know how much I earn. It's pretty depressing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we shouldn't say the exact figure out of deference to it being Bruce's question, and it will direct traffic to his blog. Exactly. <laughs> Beyondthejoke.com, maybe. Beyond the joke, yeah. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's not like you're calling it a blog, it's a website. Oh, sorry. Is yeah, it a... Say sorry okay. to Bruce. Sorry, Bruce. <laughs> um, it's a... Uh, oh, yeah, it is. No, it's a, it's a website, isn't it? It's a bloggy website. I... This retains... this. There is a tantalising air of mystery now about whether or not we will come in in a minute or use what we've already done. Because I'm very I'm, excited to find out. Because I am... Uh, I like to say a little secret thing to people before I start doing this, which I don't think I've mentioned on the show before, but maybe we'll just roll through it and I'll cut it out later or not, which is that, have you, I don't know if you've ever heard the show and don't feel that you have to lie. I, have. If I you even haven't. had the, I did the, please introduce me to your beautiful daughter. You did, you fucking did, thank you, yes, I'd forgotten that. Um, there is no stand-up of yours available on YouTube, is that right? Yeah, there's no stand-up available on YouTube, not yet. Okay, is that, have you been saving it up? Well, I just, I'm, I, I can't really, I record all my gigs on my phone, so every time I, uh, the next day, I listen back to it, and I hate it so much that I would hate, like, there is stand-up of me on YouTube, but you have to possess the private links, and those are to make sure that when I send that, or when my agent sends that to a promoter, they don't book me. Yeah. Um, so that's what those clips are for. <laughs> I see, sorry. I thought you were explaining the point of the private link. The point, that of, is the, the point, of, the point of the stand-up clip yes, is that you is can send it to a promoter who then won't book it. Who then won't book I'm me. sorry, I misunderstood. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I want to get rid of all of those. And um, I would like to put... I've had uh, my, my stand-up filmed for the Soho show by a very lovely, talented woman called Ruth Sewell. Uh, who did my Comedians on Buses Getting Tap Water videos. Which I and love. Very good. Thanks very much indeed. And, uh, yeah, she very kindly recorded the show, so hopefully going to put it up on YouTube. And uh, and then I will be on YouTube. Because I think it's gotten to a point now where I've been going for, God knows, to eight, nine years-ish-ness. So you should be able to produce things that you're happy about for more than <laughs> two months. <laughs> Is there a, an element to which you are safeguarding your stuff in that kind of Eddie Izzard, I don't do TV kind of way. But for YouTube, is there a... Because YouTube is so awash with comics work. And it seems to me that you're someone who takes very real pleasure in doing things differently to other people. Yeah, but I don't know whether I'm being a kind of... Uh, I'm sort of getting into the position now where I don't know whether I'm being a contrarian for contrarianism's sake. And I don't know whether perhaps I might be better advised to go on... 8 out of 10 cats, and ignore the fact that it's abysmal and just sort of be part of the fun and then maybe have some fans and then maybe <laughs> never have to go on that again. Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe that would be a better process. Like, maybe it's a better thing to go on YouTube and to do funny things, and I have started doing that more. But I always, like... I think I'm just a bit too in love with the past in a sort of Midnight in Paris-esque way, whereby I like, you know, oh, Tom Waits, there's like three or four interviews you can find of his whole career mm. on YouTube. And there's just such sort of, like everything you find of him is so precious that when you get something, it's exciting. And I don't want to, I'm very aware of people that it's just so, there's so much yeah. everywhere. And, like, there all these stand-up programmes, like, even, like, filtering right down now to you can be on YouTube as part of a Radio 1 thing, I think. Okay. 
Have you heard of that? <laughs> and, anyway, you... I, I don't listen to Radio 1, Alfie. No, 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 but it's on YouTube. And they <laughs> oh, fine, like okay, got you. Visual radio on Radio 1. And they have stand-ups there, and very good stand-ups as well. But it's like there's an audience that seems to be there that isn't very interested in stand-up or being awake or human, anything. Like a very, it's just a bizarre... So I, I'm just very wary about any sort of... And I'm not saying if I wanted to be on that thing, I could be either, or anything like that. I'm just... I don't know... I, I quite like the idea. I think I've been holding back till I think I'm good enough to sort of go to fling myself full pelt into the mouth of the beast. Okay. That seems quite um, unlike you to be holding back, given the nature of your work. And I feel we should sort of explain a little bit about who you are for the benefit of people who don't know you. Mm. You've done how many hours? Four or five? Um, four now. Four. Four, four hour long shows. Four hour long shows. Edinburgh. All of which have incited. All of which have incited. <laughs> I think that's true. Um, you, for for the benefit of people who who haven't who won't be familiar with your work, people listening in other countries and what have you, um, tell us please. In your own words, what do you do? Um, uh, just. Well, my f- the first show, The Love You Take, was kind of like a, a piece of Dylan Moran rip-off shit in which I sort of explained the birth of the universe and then railed against sort of uh, contemporary culture as if what I was saying was uh, important. Then the next year, while I was doing that show, some guy from Live Nation um, told me to be funny, not clever. Nobody cares how clever you are. And I made a whole show out of that about how even comedy was trying to get sort of dumbed down and watered down into this sort of insipid viral tap garbage that is just filling the sort of landscape. And uh, and that became a thing because I wrote I wrote a, a piece in The Independent called The Comedy Industry Is Its Own Disease. And, um, and that attracted a lot of attention because I called Stand Up For The Week a weeping spine... Uh, a, a weeping sore on the broken spine of a dying rat. And that got a lot of attention from Off The Curb, who produced that programme, um, from like lots of people that worked there, who told me that my name was, I quote, poison in their office. Apart from Addison Cresswell, who was very, very nice when I met him. He was very friendly with me. Spat in my face quite a lot, but he was, seemed not charming, but, you know, like you've heard he was. Um, and then the next year I sort of, I wanted to change the next year and make my stand up. I wanted to be funnier because a lot of the criticism that was leveled at me was going, you'll be funny, not clever, but do, do be funny though. It's a good <laughs> message, but do be funny. You must do that. And the next year it was, um, I just wanted to be a lot more funny. So I calmed down a lot of the, um, you know, polemic. And then this year I wanted to try and do both. Um, and I think this year was my far and away my best show, and I was really, really happy with it, and no-one came to see it. Um, No-one came to see it in Edinburgh? In Edinburgh, no. And did people come and see it in Soho? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fairly full the night I saw it? It was fairly full the night you saw it, and it was fairly full on subsequent evenings as well. But, I mean, I did have to, I mean, really knock on several people's doors and sing from several rooftops to get anyone even remotely interested in anything that was going on at the Soho Theatre at 8.30 that week. Where do you feel that you are um, 
Where do you feel that you are in your career at the moment in terms of... Because I'm surprised to hear that you had to sing from the rooftops to get people to see that show. I think from my point of view, you're still an exciting enfant terrible of the British comedy scene. I think people talk about your shows a lot. I think people want to come and see them. I think you're, you're doing something that's very, very different to what a lot of other people are doing. Do you feel like it's working or do you feel like, oh, God, this is, you know, I've got some critical acclaim, but no tickets sold? Um, well, it's just, I think everybody will, I mean, I was on at 11 tonight because of some sort of uh, venue malfunctions. And it was just a difficult year to be on at 11. And Edinburgh isn't what it used to be because everybody wants to go to bed or go f- and see Spank or whatever people want to do nowadays. Whereas back in 2003, I think Edinburgh would have been a kind of a a late night happening kind of groovy Paris in the twenties kind of vibe enough for people to go and watch a show at 11 and not sort of need to vomit or scream or see somebody get naked to sell tickets to their show. So, um, I, I, I don't, I don't think about myself as having any acclaim, but I think I'm far too, um, worried to think of myself as having any acclaim. And also when people talk about my show, I'm not there. So I never get to hear that. Which is a shame, because I would love to hear people talk about my show. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm slightly tripping myself up because I think I love you, Alfie. <laughs> I, think, I, I feel a really warm, sort of, kind of fraternal... I have big, big, big fraternal feelings towards you. I have big fraternal feelings towards you too. <laughs> I feel like you and I... Um, I feel like the first time we met, do you remember, I drove you to a Mirth gig in God knows where. No, Nick Coppin drove us to a CKP gig in Liverpool. No, I'm thinking of a different time. I'm sure I personally have picked you up from your house. That's how I remember it. Is that wrong? It is wrong because me and you met Nick Coppin in Queen's Park and he drove us all the way to Liverpool in his friend's silver borrowed estate uh, Rob Deering was headlining and he had just taken delivery of his first baby boy, Buddy Ray. <laughs> this is unfair. You're adding additional details which, to make it sound more I'm possible. Adding, I'm, I'm adding additional details to... First of all, I sort of brag about what a good memory I have and second of all, tell you that it's definitely correct. <laughs> um, Mickey D's just done the same thing to me. He was the most recent episode I recorded and he's got an incredible photographic memory. Um, or maybe the more interviews I do where I say to people, God, you've got an incredible photographic memory. I'm gradually <laughs> realising that, that what I consider memory as a whole different thing for other people. Um, I, but at that time when we gigged together, you were mild-mannered Alfie Brown. Mm. You were a nice, young, clean-shaven boy. Mm-hmm. And we really got on with each other. Yes. And I really enjoyed, I have really enjoyed watching you turn into yourself and grow up and have a crazy life. And now I sort of think of you, you've got a child, you've been through a divorce. You're sort of more life experienced than I am <laughs> in a way that I find sort of exciting and annoying, you know. <laughs> um, and I suppose... I've always considered that you and I are bonded somehow through me, through having gone on and had that particularly good conversation. You know, I mean, I don't remember the car. I'm I'm sure it, I mean, it may be that there were two gigs. It may be that I also drove you to a Mirth gig somewhere. Maybe, Maybe it wasn't that, that wasn't the first time. It would be unlikely to to forget, but okay. (laughs) Um, But I, I feel like, because I knew you before you started 
wearing shirts open to your belly button and having a beard and long crazy hair and slagging off TV shows and burning bridges and making waves in that kind of respect. Mm. Um, I feel like I kind of... I feel like you're my friend's little... Like, you're an ex-girlfriend's little brother. Do you know I mean? That's the sort of relationship I have with you, where I'm like, oh, Alfie, and I, I roll my eyes and I go, I wonder what he'll do next. <laughs> now, is that... Is that something that... Is the fact that you are from a nice family of TV comedy-related parents who presumably have got a couple of quid, and you have transformed within your time on the comedy circuit. Does that ever occur to you? Is that ever problematic for you, given that you are a kind of a relentless truth-teller and you started off as a nice young man? Um, well, I think... Well, as, as you see me right now, I've got quite short hair and I've got quite short stubble. I was very surprised um, when you came on stage uh, at Soho the other week and you didn't, you didn't look anything like the wild man of the And I'm wearing time. kind of quite a nice colourful rainforest T-shirt and I just look like quite a nice boy, I think. Anyway. Um, you look like a post-rehab nice boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've gone through my... I'm, I'm pleased to kind of be coming out of the dark room now. Um, when you first met me and I was all sort of uh, young and fresh-faced and sort of ready to be a TV presenter or whatever was about to happen to me. Um, I, yeah, I was still very angry. I've always been an angry person, but I was angry about, like, cats and dogs because my dad had just gone through a divorce and um, the family that he left um, had cats and he had a dog and there was, I just thought, well, yeah, maybe if I write a bit like that's pro-dogs then maybe I can, like, you know, <laughs> get on side with him a little bit more. Um, but also it was just a funny bit about the difference between cats and dogs, like, you know, uh, like, I think we all have, don't we? Um, and then we don't do anymore. So I suddenly, I used to go up for all these programmes, one of my first agent, who was, uh, who is a lovely, lovely woman, um, for things like on MTV, presenting gigs called things like The Shit One. This is real, this is not false, this is not made up, called The Shit One. Um, which is where I would sit down and ask James Bourne, Joe O'Meara, uh, Dane Bowers, um, the other one from Blue, the one who looks like a builder, like what it was Lee like Ryan. in that band <laughs> He's the only one to I know be the me. shit one. Okay. <laughs> and I just was like, well, how are we, are we really going to legitimise? This has been commissioned, has it? Oh yeah, okay, cool, it's been commissioned and you want me to go there and bully people for having had less sex in their time as being... What you also James Bourne's not the James Bourne's not the shit one. James Bourne wrote the things, didn't he? James Bourne is the one rolling in it, while the other two go and do whatever it is the other two are doing right now. Who knows? But this is just legitimised bullying, and I won't, I won't do it. And there was a whole bunch of stuff like that that um, I found kind of quite depressing to be involved in. So I think after um, me, uh, after I sort of turning down the opportunity to do several sort of. MTV-ish kind of T4 audition-y sort of things like that and being pushed in that direction. I think I left there and made the decision to grow my hair and grow my beard so that that mistake could never be made again. <laughs> um, in terms of my background and my my mum, I think it's quite... My dad's, my dad's like this sort of like, you know, mad, angry, very loving, working-class Kent nutcase... Um, and I think when I first started comedy, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to go, the system's fucked, you're fucked, I'm going to nut you, here's a joke. 
Whereas now, like a lot of the things that I think are quite apparent that I've tried to build into my show is a lot of the, as my review in the Times said, um, he's very good at impressions, something he's inherited from his mum. Like I suddenly woke up one morning <laughs> and was really good at impressions. Like that takes no work whatsoever. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's something I've tried to incorporate a lot more now, the, the sort of characterful side and the playful side. Um, I haven't answered your question. That's all right. It was to do with um, being middle class and yet still raging against the machine. Uh, Yeah, it does look a bit silly because people don't like um, middle class people very much. Um, But I don't care. Um, I can only speak about what I care about. And I'm just... I haven't settled on anything. And I'm not going to be a volatile kind of truth preacher, average shock comedian, as Ivo Graham's dad once called me. Um... (laughs) For I don't care for that really. I just want to be a really, really good comic, and but I'm not going to censor myself. So I don't know where I end up, but I don't think I'll probably end up talking about the fact that I'm I've got this class level. But you know, but it doesn't matter. A lot of I think quite an interesting point actually is in the cultural environment of today, you'll find a lot of middle class people. Um, creating, taking kind of artistic risks because they can afford to, because I'll never be homeless. So I can afford to say whatever I want. Whereas somebody who may come from a working class background or somebody who's struggling like really, really badly for money and knows that I need to eat otherwise, I need to make money to eat otherwise I'm finished, I'm dead. And they might not take the same artistic risks for fear of their career taking longer to get to a place where they can perhaps play a club that will grant them more money, perhaps get on, sorry, I touched the mic, stand up for the people who are in this environment, like, you know, Channel 4, blah, 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 like the thing. Um, so there's that interesting aspect. And I think that's true in music as well. All these people who are taking risks in music, as you know, are, are very well off. It's the middle class people who are taking no risks. Those are the true shits. <laughs> that's a fantastic answer thank you um so speaking of the true shits yeah do you you must be surrounded by a peer group of comedians who are not taking as many risks as you are mm. how do you see your peers just like good comedians i just like them and hanging out with them they're fun i mean i don't there's why in every single thing I've ever written or every single, single thing I've ever said about anything that's shit, like, I mean, there are so many comedians. I, I, Stand Up for the Week is a bad programme. It's bad at being a stand-up programme. There's no... I, I've had people who were on that programme come up to me and go, I agree with you, it is shit. Everyone knows it's shit and everybody knows they're involved in, like, lowest common denominator bullshit in the same way that all pop songs have a four-to-the-floor drum beat. Doosh, 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 doosh. Because that feeds into the brain of like, um, you know, George Orwell's proles, and that makes everybody kind of buzz and fizz as they drink fizzy fucking alcohol and then come in each other, whatever happens at the moment of the weekends. I don't know, I've got a child now. Um, Like, uh, there's... Like, there's there's bad bad comedy, and it's it's easy... You make it easier to digest. But that's never caused an issue between me and anybody apart from the standard comedians who don't like me, which is fine, I don't mind. Like, some people just won't like each other. But my peer... I have no... I have nothing but respect for anybody who I'm friends with. And, like, there's such a different... It's just be good or try your best. I don't mind. If you want to take a different route, then that's fine. I won't judge you. Who am I to say that I know better than you? I'm just a tiny little boy. But you... 
you, I think, present yourself as someone... You, like, the idea that you, that seems at odds with me, that you go, who am I to say? Mm. Well, you're a person that says, aren't you? Yeah, and then you can say against me, and then uh, this is... I, I, I like having this opinion, I enjoy it, and I think it's right. Um, I don't necessarily... I, w- I wouldn't presume to say that it's certainly right, and I would be willing to have an open and honest debate without any anger involved, because I like... I don't think anybody's saying that. So it seems fun to me to say it because everybody just seems to have gone la 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 and put their fingers in their ears and nobody's going, hang on, I think that might be dreadful. Or hang on, I think... So it's just fun to take the other point of view. Like when this whole Dapper Laughs thing exploded and everybody goes on Facebook, everyone's a cunt except me. Um, <laughs> like, how do you possibly... Why don't we just actually have a conversation about it without all this fury? Like all this left-wing anger... Like, I would love to be able to go on stage and take the piss out of, like, bankers' bonuses. and But it's boring. If I'm left-wing and I get on stage and chant left-wingness to a room full of left-wing people, and then we all have a wank and go home and sleep, then what's the point? Like, we're just... What's anybody actually got done? So it's much more fun to be on stage and make a lot of left-wing people very angry with some rather reactionary views. Um, of course, I wouldn't actually do that, but I would love to do that. Um... Sorry, I went off on one. That's quite all right. Um, I suppose... Do you remember I saw your show last year, two years ago? Yes. And we had a chat about it, the Gilded yes. Balloon Lost Bar. Let's talk about that conversation, because I, I wish I'd recorded that conversation that we had. OK. I think I told you that... No, I, in fact, what I did was I tweeted... A recommend- furiously... Maddeningly naive. Maddeningly naive. <laughs> I said, I didn't just say that... Um, I tweeted, not at you, so you were obviously Googling your name on Twitter, you were searching your name Don't on Twitter. Don't try and attribute some sort of shame to Google, like, Twittering <laughs> your own name, like it's not done every day by everyone. <laughs> I, I can tell you that there is a guy who delivers blood in the northeast called Alfie Brown, there's a uh, racehorse called Little Alfie Brown, and I only know this because I spend, like, half an hour after every gig Twittering my own name, to see okay. what's happened. Okay, we'll come back to that. Now, I said something like, it was a recommendation that people go and see your show. Mm. And I said something like... Oh, also, I follow you, so I saw it. <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah, if, only, <laughs> yeah. If, if only you thought to say that first before your admission that you spent half an hour a day. <laughs> um, I said, it is... I can't remember exactly what I said. I said something like, it's half... It's by turns just enthralling and incredible yeah. and maddeningly naive. Yeah. And then we had a really good conversation about it and I really enjoyed the conversation that we had because, the, and it, for me, it's representative of the, 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 the core of Alfie Brown, as far as, as, far as I'm concerned, as far as my, my relationship to your comedy is, that you are absolutely saying unsayable, no, not unsayable things, things that a lot of people don't dare say, a lot of people on stage don't dare say. Yeah, a lot of people on stage don't dare say, absolutely. And you're, you're, you've got some incredibly good ideas and some really funny stuff, and then you'll say something that I go, oh, Alfie, come on, that's like something a teenager would say. I can't really remember any examples of things that... Um, I can't defend myself uh, appropriately because I can't remember any of the things that I said that were, in your opinion, adolescent. Um, <laughs> Do you, you you're frequently accused of smugness on stage? In, yeah, in reviews. 
Yeah. Do you get that? Do you do you get where people are coming from? Well, yeah, but again, th- th- I'm only accused of being smug because I'm white and a middle class man. So I'm not allowed to be sort of. I- I'm not allowed to behave in this way with this level of confidence. I have to be more. I have to apologise for myself more because my ancestors were guilty of patriarchy, uh, slavery, and my parents have done well for themselves. So I now need to say I'm sorry to everybody, which is sort of fair. I can sort of understand um, why it would be difficult for people to kind of understand, like see me on stage and go, oh, well, this, this, is, this guy is certainly punching up. Um, so for me, I need to come on stage and go, God, I'm such an idiot. God, I'm such a dick. Um, but it's just a bit too boring, so I'd much rather sort of not apologise for it. And I think my my limiting of myself of, of apologising for being that sort of triumvirate of um, modern comedic unlikability uh, is perhaps why I get being accused of being smug. I think that's a really good answer, and I agree with everything you've said, but I think you are also smug. <laughs> I think I probably am. But I think lots of people are smug. I think lots of people are smug who wouldn't get accused of being smug if they were um, not, uh, I mean, it sounds bad if you say black, like, but like, you know, um, if not middle-class white male. God, I've got to be very careful what I say, otherwise I'm going to end up on Lee Kern and Michael Legg's Facebook feed. <laughs> <laughs> How do, um, no, no, that's a, that's, a really, that's, a, that's a really interesting answer. Because I, I think that you're, you don't apologise, and that's very exciting. Mm. I just can't wait to get old. That, that's another reason why not more of my stuff is on Facebook, is because uh, YouTube, YouTube rather, yeah. is because I think this is really gonna. I think this is really gonna hit home coming from an old guy, um, and looking. But this is the thing that I've tried to kind of. I've got a bind in my brain where I'm trying to all the beard and the hair. The beard, probably the beard and the hair, probably didn't help because it made me look more like an outsider. And I think that the aesthetic of a comedian is very, very important uh, because that sort of, uh, as Nish quoted in his... Oh, no, no, he didn't. He quoted another one of my lines, but it was very exciting to be in the podcast. <laughs> um, you can tell from the first 15 seconds of meeting somebody whether or not you're going to like him, and then I just sit and wait for them to go, oh, he's waiting for that 15 seconds. Ah, funny joke. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, sort of the, the instinctive... And instantaneous aesthetic judgment that comedians are subject to from an audience is an interesting thing to analyse and be aware of. What do you? What's the first thing an audience sees when I get on stage? Uh, they see like a guy who looks like a sort of less top manny dressed Jack Whitehall with a nicer nose. Um, that that's pretty much it. Uh, I don't sound like him, although a lot of people say that I do. Um, but I think that's because we have exactly the same tone, skin and whatnot, and eyes and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so I'm very, very, very aware of of that. And I like, I like playing with that. And I don't really know how best to move forward with what it is people are seeing. Um, but I, I think when somebody sees somebody else and they kind of look different or they look like what we as a society would conceive of as an underdog, uh, maybe that be kind of an ethnic minority or, or something that gives you the impression that you've 
had to punch up at some point in your life, mm. you can then behave smugly and go, well, good for him. He's, you know, yes, okay. he's behaving smugly. So this is Alfie Brown, ladies and gentlemen. What a guy. <laughs> what, what a guy. Honestly, he, he, if you haven't heard his stuff by now, there's every chance he's really annoying you. But just trust me on this. He's, he is, uh, he's excellent. He's really excellent. Um, so track down his stuff. Obviously, well, track down him online. As uh, sorry, him live. As you've heard, uh, he doesn't have much available uh, online. But he really is worth it. People would not be falling over themselves to call him the future of British comedy if he wasn't onto something. Um, and uh, and a very very pleasant young man to boot. Um, as you heard at the beginning, he uh, insisted upon uh, buying the coffee. So uh, check out his, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this during the interview, but check out his, uh, he, he does a, a kind of a, a vlog. No one's worked out a good word for that yet. Um, but he does a show on YouTube called Comedians in Buses, Comedians on Buses Getting Tap Water. And uh, you should check that out. It's a lot of fun. Um, I I will leave it to you to make your minds up about Alfie Brown and not say anything further. Thank you for everyone that donated over Christmas to uh, Mind on behalf of the show. Much appreciated. Uh, we had uh, a couple of donations come in as well, uh, and those are very much appreciated. One of them I'm going to mention uh, only because it was a don- donation on behalf of someone else, um, from Tom Baggs, who's a, a friend of the show, a listener who's donated in the past. And um, he uh, he says that he's donating to the show once more on behalf of another Stu, Stu Bags. Uh, he says, Stu is the father of two brilliant young Bags boys. All his money goes towards giving them a good home. So I'm not sure whether he's found any spare cash to be able to donate to anything, uh, d- donate anything towards the show. Cry me a river, Stu Bags. Um, <laughs> uh, so Tom says, I thought I could pay something towards his listening pleasure and call it a late Christmas present. So thanks very much. Um, in this example, Tom Bags is treating this show very much like a goat that he is sponsoring on behalf of his brother. So um, thank you very much to Tom. Thanks, Stu, uh, on behalf of both of us. And um, uh, Tom goes on to say, I hope you're enjoying slash surviving the Christmas period, which I was and I did, and here we are. Um, That's all for now. I I don't think I'm spruiking anything in particular, unless you're in Christchurch, New Zealand, in which case come along to the World Buskers Festival. Google yourself up some details. I'm going to be comparing uh, a, a bill, including Tom... Uh, no, what's his name? Luke Heggie um, and Harley Breen and Chris. What is the name of Chris? Turner. Chris Turner. It's, it's going to be great. It's going to be great fun. So come along and see that if you're in New Zealand. And uh, if you're not, then I will be I will still be recording shows. Um, I'm going to do a live podcast out there with Ursula Carlson, who is just terrific. You, you may not know her in the UK, um, but she's really, really special. Um, so I'm doing an interview with her. I'll try and get Harley as well, maybe. I'll try and talk to some people as I go. And I've got a couple of pre-records to release once I'm out there. So it should be business as usual from your point of view. It's just that the blurbs will be mostly me sort of sunning myself uh, on a, in a rich kind of sunny uh, carpeted <laughs> room with like a you know what was it the sunbeam that Garfield could never jump through that's what I'm that's what I'm uh, trying to describe and um, so I'm going to be insufferable on the blurbs for the next few weeks I can only apologize and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of no 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 uh, just before we get to Alfie of course you can donate it's after Christmas sod the charity send me money for the show uh, if you'd like to donate then uh, please do you can click on the PayPal donate button at comedianscomedian.com 
uh, or you can, uh, if you'd like to contact me, you can email me info at comedianscomedian.com or tweet at comcompod. Uh, and I use Twitter very sporadically these days, but I do try and reply to, or I'm trying to reply or at least favourite <laughs> to show that I have read uh, your various messages. So that's all for now. Sometimes I, I do these little blurbs on the basis of some stuff that I've written down and I read the notes. Sometimes like this, I wing them. Maybe you could email me and tell me to tell me which is better. Maybe you'd like to say, stop winging them. This is awful. Um, but nonetheless, here I am winging it and I shall return you to the brilliant Alfie Brown. Do you feel that interviewers have an agenda with you? Because like part of me, part of my, like I'm aware with this podcast that if I, not that I would ever do this, but part of it goes, oh, I've got Alfie Brown here. Maybe I can get him to slag off some sacred cow in the industry. Do you know mm. what I mean? When you wrote that article that slagged off Stand Up for the Week, I remember thinking, fucking hell, Alfie's burned some bridges here. Mm. Did you feel like you were burning bridges? You must have. Well, no, it felt like I was building them. Because instead of everybody just ignoring me outright, people started taking notice of me. And all I had to do was sort of be honest with, you know, language that I enjoyed using. And in sort of just, yeah, but I've just enjoyed being honest about things and saying stuff that it seemed like people were shying away from saying. And I don't think there's any great sort of talent involved there. I think the show I was very proud of. Um, but, yeah, no, I sort of enjoy doing that. I, I, I haven't stopped doing it, but I... You know, there's always people who deserve to be put down, but I'm really not sure who they are right now. Apart from, you know, all these... The people who I'm most bored of at the moment are people on uh, Facebook being self-righteous and hating everybody and each other and, you know, people having a go and going, you don't know anything, I can't believe I was friends with you, and, oh, my God, my opinion. If your opinion was really that great, you know, you've got thoughts in your brain and time on your hands, otherwise you wouldn't be sitting there, you know sneering at everybody else just get on with it write a book or you know get a job or something (laughs) write a book or get a job there's your legacy message to people on facebook yeah why did you get cut from Stuart lee's alternative comedy show um because i don't know i found that quite upsetting to be honest um I, we don't need to talk about it. You mentioned it in your show. No, I was no, no, interested. no, I, I, don't I, don't, wanna... I, don't, I don't mind talking about I'm it. I'm not the, doing the... that thing of poking you with a stick going, no, go and slag no, no, off no, Stuart no. Lee. The, the guy who, the guy, the producer, Colin, was, is a really uh, nice guy. Um, and I was, I was a little bit frustrated, all told, uh, that before the show I had said, is there anything I shouldn't be talking about? Um, and he went, no, 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 you'll be fine. You can say whatever you want. That's the point of the show. And then afterwards, you went, well, obviously we can't use that large chunk of material, mm. which is a bit of material I wrote that I don't know if you ever saw. It was from Soul for Sale about being a paedophile doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. It's the being active as a paedophile. And people need, if we, if we had a more understanding attitude towards paedophiles, then perhaps we could lower offence rates rather than just this attitude of um, vilifying people for having a thought they can't control. Um, but of course it's a bit of comedy, so you have to be more antagonistic about it than that. Um, and yeah, so all that was left was this bit of, you know, at the, uh, uh, eight minutes at the beginning, mm. 
the you can't really it's you can't really split that up into chunks to put on mm. the program. If you ever seen it, you would know that that wouldn't work because it's not enough to split up across the course of an episode. So uh, just got cut from it, um, which was really sad. Did you not? I mean, did you think to sort of double check beforehand when you say anything? Do you like this is this is a piece of material about a subject that literally no one is actually talking about at the moment? Well, no, because I don't. I I don't have the same filter as everybody else. I don't, or I don't. That seems like a kind of a rather grandiose thing to say, but I don't have that filter that goes. Well, I'm just. I'm not saying anything. But I've never said anything offensive. If you actually look mm. at the kind of the actual the deep, there's a bit about internet porn I did where like you know it was all kind of like grotesque imagery and blah blah blah. But I'm only using that grotesque imagery to try and highlight the fact that um, young people exposed to porn. Uh, too young an age that will um, warp their ideas of sex in later life. It's quite a kind of a nice mumsy message to have, mm-hmm. but it's just I'm delivering it in a sort of horrible kind of like grotesque way to really sort of you know bring forth the horror of the situation as I see it. So in in that same, I'm, I'm it's a fairly like nice sentiment. Treat people who haven't offended better, maybe try and help people, offer them therapy, with the in mind that 99.9 billion percent of paedophiles have themsem- themselves been uh, abused as children, and then maybe have that work that level of understanding into your treatment of them, rather than going, taxpayer pays for pedophone when the NSPCC tried to launch a helpline. It's fairly, like, that's a nice thing, I think. Mm. So I just thought, well... It would take a real moron, the sort of moron who won't go and seek out a stewardly curated Comedy Central programme. Um, so when I said, can I talk about anything? I, I, thought that the, I thought that they would take on board that I meant more than just like saying the word cunt or having a bit about like Jesus cutting himself or whatever. Mm. The, you know, shock staffers are doing at the moment. So is there, do you reckon they'd have you back? Is there a possibility you can go back to them and say, oh, I see what you mean now? Well, I don't know. It depends whether they get any of the series. I would love to go back, um, and I would certainly go back. And, um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. After this podcast, <laughs> I honestly thought knows. you were going to say, I'd certainly go back and I'd do exactly the same material again. <laughs> well, I would, I would certainly run, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold back and do kind of like a 15 minutes of, you know, or half an Fluff. hour of, you know, these are the things that I look like. Um, isn't it funny that, you know, <laughs> you know, it's still an alternative comedy program. You should be doing something a bit alternative. And, uh, yeah, I would, I would still, I would still go for that, but I would, I would probably check a bit more strenuously, uh, that it was going to be aired afterwards. I want to talk about your writing process. Okay. And I want to talk about how you make the stuff. So... You've got this gig tonight, you've got like a regular new material thing. What are you taking with you to that in terms of material? Um, I have a, a, a piece of socialist literature. Um, no, I have a, my, my notebook. I just have my notebook and my notes on my phone. I'll write down all the notes on my phone, but usually when I'm writing new material, I'll go up with um, a, a point of view, an angle, and then that's it, and I'll record it. And then I'll listen back to it and go... Oh, that came out of that, but it has to have a. It has to be a point of view that's individual with an angle that's individual. Okay. Um, Can you give us an example of a thing you're going to try tonight? 
and what the point of view and what the angle are. God, no, it's like it's the, it's the afternoon. I haven't written anything yet. Um, <laughs> Can you give us a, a, uh, an example of one you did last time? Then? Like, um, well, with this, with the, with a bit in my last show, which is one of the bits that was sort of as a, as a bit of material worked better. It was about. Um, a febophilia, often confused with paedophilia, which is uh, the sexual attraction to adolescents, uh, which, as you can see, is a recurring theme in my work because yeah. I find it fascinating. And I'm fascinated by sex in general, which is something that I have to get over at some point. Um, uh, so that was... Um, I would never fuck a 14-year-old. That doesn't mean I wouldn't absolutely love to. That's why the law exists. So I had that's why the law exists, because yeah. that is obviously, that's just something that is true that nobody likes. Okay. Because there's no, there's, if you, there's no thing there that there's no, like, what about a 14-year-old? When I was 12, my best friend was a girl, and she looked 18. And I used to, she used to pretend that she was my babysitter in front of her 18-year-old boyfriends, who she thought, who they all thought she was 17. And there was, well, we want to know, they weren't gross for that. Mm. Because she looked 17. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe there are lots of moral questions to ask about whether you should, like, ID people before you shag them. I don't know. Um, but that, that, was, that was the idea. So I just had... It was because my little brother, um, uh, she uh, had a friend and he was in a photo with her on mm. Facebook. And I went, oh, my God. And then I went, oh, that's a bit worrying. Mm. Um and that, that sort of, that feeling of, feeling attracted to her, going, oh, she's 14. Um, and then going, that's interesting. This is interesting how I couldn't help thinking she was hot immediately. And now I'm second guessing it. So is so there... I had the, I had, I was interested in my own psychological process there. And then I went, tried to rationalise it with myself and went, uh, oh, but she is 14... I suppose it would be illegal. Oh, that was, I suppose that's why the law exists, because I want to, but I won't because of the law. Um, or not just because of the law. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, but then, as I say in the bit, like the age of consent in Germany is 14, so is it morally reprehensible to go over there and have sex with somebody who's 14, or is it like blah, blah, blah? What, what is morality geographic? Is there like a cut-off point? Should each like situation been taken on its own merits? Because there's every kind of legitimacy to suggest that if you did have sex with... Like, if you had sex... The reason why it's there, if you have sex with a 14-year-old, it sort of, like, ruins their youth a little bit and uh, they kind of feel a bit gross about having done that in later years because they sort of think you had an element of control over them uh, that you had because of your age later. But actually, that might only happen 8 out of 10 times and you might have sex with a 14-year-old as a 44-year-old man and she went, I just loved having sex with that (laughs) 44-year-old and just never regret it for the rest of her life. In which case, that's fine. Um, But the law exists to protect the 8 out of 10 who it would negatively affect. Uh, anyway, that's how that I'm going to assume you're plucking those figures out of the air in terms of... Oh, I'm completely <laughs> picking them out of my ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you go on with that premise. Is that all st- all, the, all the angles that you just mentioned there in that description of the bit, or like those possible angles, are those angles that you found on stage whilst talking about it to a presumably horrified room? The first time I ever did that 14-year-old bit, it came to me, like, in the moment... Um, the actual line, that's why the law exists, came to me in the moment. And you can hear it on the internet. It's one of the first, uh, one of the first uh, episodes of uh, Richard Herring's Edinburgh Comedy Podcast, where okay. Jenny Eclair is the guest, yep. and I'm the stand-up guest. And I sort of go, 
I get bored with my material because I've been doing it in my shows and I start talking about how... I started talking about the idea of child abuse and... I'm really sorry, Stu. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. I don't um, think I was looking horrified there. Um, I'm interested in the... Because you know how Amanda Bynes, who used to be this like Disney Disney Channel star when she was 13? Okay. She, that's true. She was a Disney Channel star when she was 13. She had her own sort of like child sitcom and whatnot. And she was like okay. a huge, pretty 13-year-old star. And she's gone mad now and has self-immolated. What the fuck? I okay. um, Well, this happened in 2013. Okay, I've never I was talking heard of her about. in any context. Okay. Fine. Okay. And um, she was depressed, kill herself, like, you know, alcoholic, you know, drug addict. Her life's a mess. And I just thought it was interesting to talk about on stage the idea of how we always think about child abuse in terms of did you fuck that child and not in terms of did you give that child its own show on the Disney Channel? Yes. Because there is a argument to suggest that Amanda Bynes would be less fucked up now if instead of having her own Disney Channel show, she was molested as a child. <laughs> that, I, I, I'm not saying that is definitely true. I'm just saying that there is an argument to be made, isn't there? Okay. Isn't there? Okay. Isn't there? And why do you want to make that argument? Why do you want to make that argument? Is it just for the glee in having people go, oh my God, Alfie, I can't believe you've said that? Um, because... I think any good sort of anything that you haven't thought about before that makes sense is good. Like well, I remember when I was reading, is it Aristotle? His golden mean. Anyway, whatever philosopher came up with that. Um, um, I'm trying to pretend I don't know to try and make myself a kind of man of the kind of thing. Are you? Um, That's interesting. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> I, I think you might be. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of read that and went, oh my God, like, you know, morality and kind of like goodness could work like that. And like my brain sort of frazzled a little bit. Uh, you know, I think it was um, Mozart who said a good piece of music have to ha- has to have a surprise every four bars. Now, when I say that um, Amanda Bynes uh, would perhaps be less mentally um, devastated had she, and it might be other factors to do with her family, I don't know. I'm just, it, I just think it's an interesting point of view because I think fame does corrupt and spoil people um so the reason why i like that is it's an observational bit of comedy and i am an observational comedian i think observational comedian is a kind of bullshit term because it's observational comedian is only given to a comedian is a moniker that's only attached to a comedian when the observations that they're making are mundane whereas and there's a sort of Maybe that's unfair and you can slate me for that if you'd like. Um, but the, the amazing thing about something is when it sort of strikes, when it, when it rings true with you when you didn't realise real, it was in you, but you didn't realise it was in you before. So the surprise kind of wakens something. It sort of and it raises consciousness to have something make sense that you didn't realise makes sense. Like I'm waiting for the day that somebody can explain parentheses to me. The two lines in maths that move closer together but never touch because they move together at a, slow, a so slow a ratio. That's going to blow my mind when I find out how that works. I thought parentheses was, was brackets. Yes, I think that's right. What are they called? Parallelele. Okay. I'm not doing the Aristotle thing. I genuinely don't know what they're called. Um, but I, I want to do that because I think it's... It seems like it's true and it makes sense and it's... It's all about this idea of moral consensus. And I think that's a big thing for me in my stand-up is 
moral consensus. We all have a kind of a collected idea of morality because we are all invested in the same sort of society's rules. We all live together and therefore I know what would be right and wrong. We have sort of predetermined things that we do to help society function and certain standpoints that we are and are not allowed to have. Um, but I, I think there are so many logical incoherences in the sort of central affirmations of our Western um, society hive mind that I like kind of pointing out flaws in them. And I think it, uh, I think it, it certainly to think about it raises my consciousness. So I hope that's what happens for other people. And the idea of it raising consciousness to go, maybe, or maybe it's not that way. And that can filter through into other moments. And it just sort of makes your brain feel like it's like, you know, when you go to the gym and you kind of feel like you've worked out, like you're, when I read the golden mean, I went, Oh my, my brain's reached a new thing. And it's the same with, just trying to tangle with ideas of perceived morality, I think is really, really interesting. There's two things I want to talk about there. One is that you say you like it when you spot those things. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in how that serves you. I'm interested in what you like about it. Yes, you get the, you know, it's interesting to have new ideas, but I do think there's an element to you which is more of an emotional need or an emotional desire to be the one that points those things out? Um, no, I think more so in my age now, I'm willing to be wrong because I think chances are that I, I just, I, I want, I want, I'm, I'm obsessed with the idea of like truth. And I think, um, there's a lot of truth concealed by the, by the, the the mass kind of purported morality. And I think there's a lot of moral truth to be found in dark places that we don't see because... So I don't... I like being the one to point it out, obviously, because who wouldn't, like, you know... You know, you jump out the bath shouting Eureka because you were the one who realised the level of the water went up because you're happy with yourself. But I'm also happy to kind of investigate other people who might have seen something like that. And I've no idea of my level of um, intellect or kind of political uh, knowledge or wherewithal. And I'm I'm interested to analyse, like, when I see Russell Brand on TV and I want to be sick, why is that? What is that? What does that say about me? Is it because he's taller than me, really good looking, knows more words than I do and is doing something on in the mainstream media that I'd quite like to be doing in a slightly different way that, than I would be doing it and that's all in all what I find frustrating because it's a mixture of sort of jealousy and do it slightly differently. Uh, but then the do it slightly differently, I exacerbate in my own mind and go, you should be doing it that way because I'm so angry at the fact that he's taller than me um, and more tanned. So... I, 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 but I like kind of finding out that about myself because then I get kind of closer to some sort of truth. And then once I've developed and gotten over my jealousy of what he is, then I can more accurately analyse the point or lack of a point that he is um, making or fail to in his argument when he hates a graph with Evan Davis. So it's just... it's it, I just find the whole... Um, yeah, I just I just want to kind of find an actual truth rather than a, 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 a lot of people's collected idea of 
truth. When you say, when I see Russell Brand, I get, totally get the point you mean. When you say, um, I see Russell Brand and I want to be sick, that's one of the adolescent things that I mean. That is a good example of one of the adolescent things. All right, mate. All right. <laughs> but that's, do you know what I mean? Because that makes me flinch slightly and go, oh, Alfie, this is a really good point you're making. But when you, see, when you say you see Russell Brown and you want to be sick, that feels like posturing rather than a point. Yeah, but it was followed up by a point. And I'm, 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 made, I'm remarked upon how my own wanting to vomit when I saw him was adolescent in the subsequent statement about addressing it. Thank you. That's a good answer. Thanks. You don't go at other people like this. And my favourite thing about this podcast is when you frame a criticism in a question. That is my favourite thing that you do. Is that a thing I do? Oh, it's so great. I'm not saying, but do you think it could be levelled at you that when you do that, it sucks? Um, and I just... And, they don't, and sometimes they don't hear it. Or sometimes they go, well, I sort of... I see what you're driving at there, Stu. Um, <laughs> I am. Um, but with I, me, you're just going. I actually, Alfie, I think that's. Uh, I don't tell. Which I, actually, I'm very warm. The cockles of my heart. I don't tell any of my other guests that I love them. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going after you hard because I believe you and want to believe in you. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> You mentioned Russell Brand. He is someone who's managed to do the anger at the system and make shitloads of money and be in movies. Mm. Do you plan to make shitloads of money and be in movies? Or are you more interested in the... Do you feel like your argument, because it seems to me you are, you are in perpetual argument with the world and with yourself and with mm. your audience and with, you know that's it's like a, it's a it's one of the things I love about your work is that it's it is a a constantly happening argument mm. do you think there is a way in which that can lead to financial success and you know tv plaudits and fame and movies and shit like that or are you kind of anticipating a career where you remain in perpetual argument for the next 40 years well in a basement I don't really... The thing about money is that I don't really... I would like to earn more than I am right now. That's aim. That's goal one. Um, and if that can actually happen, I'll be over the moon. I'm not quite sure how that's going to happen. Um, I, I, I don't really see any... I don't feel like the two of me... Russell Brand's managed to frame it quite well because he's managed to go... Um, I'm an addict to drugs, I'm an addict to women, I'm a TV presenter, I'm a comedian, I'm a film star, I've had an epiphany, the system's fucked. So he's managed to collect, over the period of time, all of the money in the world, and then um, and now be very angry that other people don't have money. Which is a fine way around to do things, and it, I'm sure it's a genuine epiphany, and, you know, good, 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 good for him, because he's, he's saying something that, you know... Um, not a lot of people are. Although in my darker moments, I do have a, like, a nice conspiracy theory of my own invention uh, that I'm quite proud of, that he is an employed tool of uh, the right-wing major corporate um, system to make the left-wing look stupid. In the same way that the CIA paid for modern <laughs> art during the Cold War, which is actually true. Um, the CIA paid for modern art? The CIA um, paid for the... Um, uh, publicising modern art during the Cold War. In order to? Um, heighten 
America's uh, standing as a progressive artistic nation in against the Soviet okay. uh, area. Um, so I quite like that. And of course, if you have like a loudmouth uh, left-wing uh, thing and you're controlled by the right wing, what does the right wing want you to get them to say? Don't vote. Because if all the left-wing people don't vote, then you still manage to get the right wing in power. It's genius. But I'm sure it's not true. Um... But it's a bit of fun, though, isn't it? Um, <laughs> um, yeah. What, 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 well, we're talking about your anticipations sorry. for your your what you anticipate of your career. Oh yeah. Well, I I I mean I I I just quite like to make some money. I'd do an advert in a minute, and I'd do every. Uh, I really don't know anymore. I'm, I feel. Would like you do? Would you do a show where you, an MTV show where you had to bully a boy band? No, but I wouldn't bully anybody. I wouldn't do any. That's the thing. Is it, I, I think it's far more. Like, is it so much worse if I advertise fairy liquid than use it? Um, sure. Or would you advertise Apple products, given your stuff, your material about slave words and slave objects? Well, fairy liquid also involves slavery, which is, you know, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I genuinely don't know because I want the money, and I don't think any intelligent person who was a fan of me is going to see me being the face of an Apple product and go, Alfie is. I need to buy an Apple product now because I love Alfie. So, I, I, I don't... Would you worry that, that you, they'd see you and go, oh, what the fuck, man? This was the guy who was telling us all about coltan slavery, you know, coltan mining slavery. Yeah, but I think... Now I, he's advertising I think it. an interesting thing in the next show is about, like... Because you come to see, you know, my show or whoever's show and you hear about, you know, slavery and we need to be nicer to people who are poor and blah, 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 and the, you know, fuck Farage, man, and... And then what does everybody do afterwards? They just go home and then, and then eat tea. I mean, this isn't... This is all, like, my bit about, like, you know, uh, the people who farm... What have I... I've done a bit about, of stand-up about the mining of coltan in the Congo. But what have I actually done about it? Apart from raise the awareness of it. But everybody feels better because the, like, they go to see a show and they go, thank God I now know that about the Coltan, and then keep their iPhones. And they go, well, it would be really inconvenient for me not to have one, and everybody does have one. So it just, it doesn't actually matter. So that's what I'm trying to reconcile myself to, is the fact that that, whilst a, a bit of stand-up that I absolutely love doing, I, it's very hard to make it matter. And I think that's what's good about Russell Brand is, it, is he is actually making a difference to people in the new era estate. And it doesn't matter if he then goes into his box at Upton Park and watches the common man from his box. He's just helping out the new era estate. It's better, it's better that he did help out the new era estate than if he didn't help it out. So do you want your stuff to help people out? Well, I think I might pick two things that I think are important and then try and... So I think maybe like, you know, uh, the education system and the Green Party... And then just go forward with those things. And then other people can pick two things and try and move forward with those. But what I'd really like is to get um, philosophy taught in primary schools um, and a, a general reformation of the education system. Because I believe there's a culture of short-termism and that's apparent everywhere. And that's what harms everything. So when the Dapper Laughs thing was happening, nobody, nobody, who, when was the last time anybody you spoke about Dapper Laughs or sexism like that since Julian Blanc and Dapper Laughs? Nobody. It was, it was to fill kind of the media mindset for that short period of time and now nobody gives a shit. But wouldn't it actually be a, a lot better if 
we actually, if we took a long-term angle on why these things become popular in the first place, it's exactly the same way that we treat mental illness. We treat the uh, effect rather than the cause. So we wait for the effect of, um, uh, you know, um, an inculcated development of sexism in the society to emerge and then, bang, smack it on the head like a kind of whack-a-mole machine rather than actually treating the cause I see what you mean I see what you mean so what you're saying is that nothing has changed Dapper Laughs is eventually a sort of a a, a Guy Fawkes figure that then gets burnt and then we go right now everything goes back to being as sexist as it always was yes Uh, he he is he is he is uh, the monkey and the organ grinder can just go and find a replacement okay so with view with with respect to your material and whether it changes anything, like choosing two topics and trying to change the world with regard to them. Yeah. So, are you ever going to be anything more than the monkey? Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know. Are any of us? I mean, it would be really nice just to go to Hollywood and get in some sort of Judd Apatow movie and make a billion quid and then fuck everybody I know and then die. I mean, how much? How much can we really change in one life? <laughs> uh, well, that is an incredible ripcord. Um, I mean, what do we mean by change? Boof goes to pub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, of, of course, I think it's. I, but I'm trying to struggle with these things. So you're 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 talking to me in the middle of me working things out. So I mean, if anybody is listening to this and goes, I can't believe he thinks this. I probably don't in two weeks' time. I'm trying to go through things as every comedian does in December in preparation for next year's Edinburgh Festival, as we all go to every year until we get a series on Radio 4, and then we can stop. So I am just sort of thinking everything through. But I think it's interesting, uh, the idea that we... Like, in the same way that people post pictures of dead Palestinian kids on their Facebook page with no arms and go, look at this, look at all the bad things that Israelites are doing. And uh, everybody goes, that is awful. And everybody goes... Hmm. and then moves on with their life and day and doesn't do anything about it. But they're feeling, they feel sated somehow in their conscience because their awareness of the wrongdoing elsewhere is at least, like, they feel like that's their penance and now they can move on with their life and have a milkshake. Why are you angry? I'm not angry. I was angry. And, and now I'm considered. But I'm not angry. I don't, did, but, I, did I seem particularly angry in my show? No, you talked earlier on about being angry. Um, you talked earlier on about stuff, about your material coming from a place of anger. Um, well, in the spirit of working things through, I think a certain level of... I think anger is a strong word for frustration um, or maybe a a byproduct of it. So my anger perhaps comes from a frustration of not having the the power that I would like or perhaps the the platform or the fan base or something like that. Um, Surely it's got to come from something earlier than that because you've been angry as a comic when it's not realistic for you to have had a fan base you were angry five years ago when you're not even going a few years um you were frustrated you know call it frustrated 
Yeah, I wonder where. What is it you're frustrated about? You seem to have been afforded uh, lots of uh, privileges with a small p. You know, you're uh, you're a white male middle class guy. You're comfortably off. You're parentally comfortably off, I'd imagine. Um, And what is it that you're rebelling against? Um, Probably that. Probably, I I feel incredibly. I I feel I get very depressed on Christmas Day, especially when I get a nice gift, because I can't bear the fact that I've got this. I don't know whether this sounds a little bit kind of Christopher Robin or sanctimonious or sort of like you know, oh you know, weeping tears of piss for Alfie because he's got a nice present on Christmas Day, um, but it seems it just seems very unfair, and I uh, I think there's a level of comfort. I, first of all, I, f- I think I feel angry. Because I don't like the fact that I have had certain comforts that have not been afforded to other people. Um, and I feel angry because I'm, you know, told, what do you know, coming from where you come from? Your opinion doesn't count for anything because you haven't had to suffer or, you know, nobody's died or, you know, like somehow that invalidates opinion. Or, like, how somehow that makes you part of an elite. Like, you know, like, Kennedy wasn't one, from one of the richest families in America and yet still kind of wanting to fight for the underprivileged and poor people of America. I did just compare myself to Kennedy. <laughs> um, Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> but I, I, I didn't really mean to. I mean, yeah. Well, there's a subconscious, you can draw an analogy. There's with... some subconscious narcissism there that's certainly at play. Um... So, uh, yeah, I think I'm just angry because I want... I, 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 I just want things to be... I, 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 want, I, want, I want the people who shot Juan Carlos de Menezes to be held to account. I want, you know, justice for the Hillsborough families. And I want, like, all these conspiracy theories. I want to know which ones are actually true and which ones are false. I can't stand not knowing how magic tricks work either. I just want to know the truth about everything. And I want to... I don't know, maybe I should be an investigative comedian. Like, break stories in jokes on stage. How, what a cool idea. That would be good. Um, I, I just, I don't know. But then maybe I'm angry because of something that happened to me when I was a little boy. Like that time in Leeds when I was in a jacuzzi and I got felt up in, by some old bloke who was talking to me about the Newcastle Man U result. I'm not angry about that. But I mean, I, I didn't know what was going on. But I'm, what I'm saying is I, I don't know why I'm angry. Some people are just angrier than others. But I would like not to be so angry and to be more considered and to invite debate. As David Hume says, the truth springs from argument amongst friends. And I just don't want anybody to go, I'm right and you're wrong. Because that whole sense of tribalism and things that separate us, tokenistic sort of, uh, labels that we put on ourselves and each other, like socialist and capitalist and feminist, and they just they 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 allow for tribalism, which I think is small-minded. Whereas it should be an open debate in which we discuss with where everybody is malleable and wants to come to some sort of eventual conclusion. You said in your latest show that you were that you were diagnosed bipolar. Mm. When was that? That was in that was in. 2010, that was diagnosed with bipolar. But I, again, don't think it exists. Tell me about that. Um, so, did you disagree with the doctor diagnosing you? No, because I was a, 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 like a, a very sad 23-year-old weeping guy. 
But um, I've been in... But, I mean, I, I fell in love with a girl when, I was in, when we were teenagers and then we grew apart into very kind of separate adults, as happens to lots of people ad infinitum and our chemical makes, up, makes us react to things differently. And you can see that I'm necessarily defensive about wanting to say that I've gone through some hardship in case people are listening and going, you don't know the half of hardship. So That's um, all right. You're in a safe place. Thanks. Um, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Um, and... Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I went completely kind of berserk and started drinking too much and, um, uh, you know, from morning till night and just went crazy uh, going to parties and went to the soap awards and uh, for some reason, um, as I say in my show. And I was in a really bad way and I cheated on her and then I flew to LA to say I'm sorry and to try and atone for this horrible thing that I'd done, which I'm ashamed about to this day. And we did, we went out for a year after that, but we were looking for an excuse and we found bipolar because it matched. But you can go through, there's a thing called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is compiled by the American Institute of Psychologists. And it just is a list of things that you can be mentally ill, mental illness, illness, mentally. And it's just such a bizarre thing to say to somebody that's feeling a little bit like emotionally, like fragile to say, you have an illness. It's because they want to tell you that it's systemic. Like, just I, I'm I'm recognizing things that you're saying from material in your show. Yeah, and I'd like to talk about this in a way that isn't simply you telling me the stuff, telling me the existing public story of it. Okay, what would what 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 would what underneath my bit about bipolar would you like to know? The, it seems to be what you're saying is you were broken hearted mm. and went off the rails mm. and got diagnosed with bipolar mm. rather than, for example, seeing a therapist, having some counselling and having a chat about, you know, I don't, chat, I don't mean to lighten it with a chat, but like, you know, you could have spent, I don't, don't know, have you, have you talked to a, did you talk to a counsellor about it? Did you, yeah, I mean, yeah, you don't no, need I've, to answer I've, this I've, if you're I've, not. I've seen, I've seen, a, I've seen a lot of counsellors in my time um, and... Uh, because you don't seem... Hey, here's a horrible sentence. You don't seem bipolar to me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a qualified medical professional, yeah, no, but no, no, no. I suffer from a lot of anxiety and sometimes depression, as this show documents from time to time. I've spent a lot of time weeping. You know, yeah. I recognise in you, I guess, similar things to me in terms of your desire to be special and loved and noticed and your desire to be separate and different. Yes, but I think probably if you've spent a lot of time being sad and weeping and um, and if you ever are, just give me a call, man. We can, it's, you know, um, uh, you probably would be susceptible under the right conditions to manic behaviour. If you haven't, I mean, I, I've seen you drink something that you'd call the turbo crabbies. <laughs> Invent and then drink. That's, <laughs> like, and then drink. That's, that's, that's probably, you know, what, not one of your finest moments. Um, so I, you know, I think everybody's susceptible to it, but there's also, um, I don't think it exists because I know that I say this in my show, but it is something I believe in earnest. It's, it's another example of treating the, uh, effect rather than the cause. So rather than if you are feeling sad, rather than addressing why you're sad, just, just pulling the sadness down, just Mm. submerging it. And it's still always going to be there unless you sort of massage it into something else. Because uh, same reason I don't take painkillers. 
I'm, if I hurt my knee, I really want to know that I don't anger it more just by covering up the pain. <laughs> Adolescent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hitting the button. <laughs> oh, God. What, what, what I want to take, we, we, we must wrap up, but what I wanted to say was that I've, I've had a similar thing. Of, I, I wish there was a diagnosis. I wish there was a medical thing. I wish there was a pill I could take. I wish there was a diagnosis where someone could say, like I've looked on Wikipedia and gone, oh, maybe there's this thing which I haven't heard about before, which would explain to me why I am desperate for community and, the, and to be surrounded by friends and also feel desperate to pull myself out of those situations in order to go home and do nothing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That sort of, that tension. Yeah. And, and I just wonder... Because I think in some ways we're very similar, um, I'm just wondering, like for me, I feel like stand-up is the solution to and the cause of loads of my problems. Yes. Does that have a similar thing with you? Do you feel vulnerable when you're on stage or do you feel powerful when you're on stage? Do you feel like you're solving your problems by being there or do you feel like you're, by, by being part of this world and part of that relationship with an audience, do you feel like you're perpetuating your problems? No, I feel powerful. especially now it's taken me so long and I really hope this doesn't come across as actually I don't care you don't care Uh, (laughs) uh, I'm I'm, I'm good at stand up now and I know that if I do a gig usually I can still do the sort of stuff I want and have it go well no matter like if I'm I've never I don't really gig in uh, you know, places where it would be difficult for me to survive or where it's difficult for anybody to survive, like a kind of, like, you know, Saturday night, Tiger, Tiger, Stag and Hen, punched up gig thing. So you, you, you don't do those? I don't do those. No. But I know that most of the time when I gig, I can give a pretty good account of myself. And I also like the, uh, the, the freedom that comes with it. There's, a, there's an honesty. I hate it when some, a comedian is on stage and... This is, goes the same for bands, especially guitarists. I don't like the idea that you could remove the audience and it could be the same gig. I really like, like you know, guitarists like you get in like Yolo Tengo and Dinosaur Junior, field players, that like it's a different solo every single time you see them and you just get your own moment with them. In the same way that I like comedians like Patrice O'Neill, because there's just, the, like every single time you can, like you can hear him do the same bit in different kind of iterations of it, over different specials and YouTube clips, albums. And it's different every time because there's always a reaction to... And you kind of go, what do you think of that, man? And what do you think of that, sir? And, like, it's just... It's so alive and in the moment. And to capture that every single time... I, I, I feel very, very powerful when I do it because I just love the dynamic. But I even feel powerful when I'm dying on stage because I've died enough now... It doesn't, doesn't damage my confidence. Anymore. Does it not? Do you not get a, a dry tongue when you're dying on stage? Do you have any physical anxiety effects from going, this is going wrong? No. Really? No. Really? No. I just, I just enjoy it. Because um, you have to... Uh, uh, I think a lot of my stand-up uh, or style right now, uh, I owe to car journeys that I took with um, Daniel Simonson. When we and him, when I first signed to the agent that was share, 
we would take car journeys out to different work in progress gigs that we were doing together. And on the way there, we'd just talk about, he's such a lovely and smart guy when it comes to stand up. And he is, as he would say, I mean, that guy's a real craftsman. Um, <laughs> he, uh, and like talking about like uh, Louis C.K. and Bill Burr and listening to Bill Burr albums and like I burned, uh, he burned me Bill Burr albums off his computer and bought me the Rolling Stone with the Louis C.K. interview in it. And it's just through talking about stand-up with him and how le- learning how to, there's something he learned in the Le French School of Comed- Edinburgh Comedy Awards. Um, Go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> the uh, French School of Edinburgh Comedy Awards. Yeah, yeah, that um, he, he went, uh, you have to learn to love your torment. So I would just go out on stage and like go and be ready to die. And love, I love doing that because now I'm not afraid. And the, the dying gives me a freedom that I really enjoy. And I can, I make sure when I die that I die spectacularly and I don't want to be a guy who died oh there's a guy who died in the middle and it was just crap yes yes I I've want heard to you die say this. yes I think you say this in, in, in the interview with Nish yes the comedians on buses getting tap water indeed um, and I just I'd enjoy it so much because it gives you free range to do anything because everything in the context of your jokes when put in the context of the silent reaction from the audience your jokes are as funny as anything Licking the microphone stand, doing an impression of a moomin, uh, nothing, anything, it just doesn't matter, anything is fine now. And every gig, as soon as I've accepted that, has then gone subsequently better. Because, and also when you own up to an audience and go, listen, you don't like me, that's cool, I'm really sorry about that. Because to be fair to them, it isn't their fault, because comedy is like one of the only things that doesn't cater to genre. So you, you go to a jazz yeah, club yeah, and you yeah. see Metallica... You go, oh, this sucks. It doesn't suck. It's just not what you came to see. So I might not be what they came to see. They might want something else. So I went, listen, I'm being paid to make entertain you. Uh, if it's a new material, I'm like, go fuck yourself. Um, but being paid to entertain you, what do you want? What do you like? And it just well, as soon as you give up, they kind of go, okay, fair enough. You, you, know, you know we don't like you. We'll have some fun. And they try to give... It's just great. It, just, it, it makes everybody... It confuses people into... Cause, People think that there should be some sort of animosity there, but there isn't. Um, I don't mind that you don't like me. It, we should just have a nice time and see if we can't. There's nothing, that doesn't mean that we should be personally against each other. If you have two more minutes, I want to come back to the writing. You're going on stage. You've got the idea. You've got, you've got an angle. You said you had an angle mm-hmm. and an attitude mm-hmm. or an opinion mm-hmm. to go on stage with. You an opinion then, and then an angle an opinion, on the opinion. And then an angle on the opinion, of course. You go on stage, you improvise around it, you record it, you listen back to it. Are there ever times when you... That was a good sign. Sorry, I'll leave that, that in. No, no, no. <laughs> it's all right. You've been emotionally engaged with the process and that's what you're all about. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was only... A, it, was a, sorry, it was more... I had to, extra oxygen that I needed. Are there particular things that you do? Are there any particular systems? Like something I've noticed you do is you set up an equivalence. You kind of go, this is like the equivalent of that. That's a particular tactic of yours when describing a difficult premise. Are there any other kind of strategies that you use? If you're going, there's something funny about this and I can't make it work in front of an audience. I can't make people laugh about it. What other unpacking systems are there? I don't know. I mean, it, I, 
If I need, maybe we, if, I, if I need to discover how to make, there is another thing I will do where I will just write stream of consciousness about, and then you kind of uh, write stream of consciousness about the topic that you want and see what comes out. And it's really not strategized in that way. It's just seeing what comes out, and then uh, I, I think my unpacking mechanisms, as you call them, are a lot more subconscious because the process of writing for me is very organic. I'm not very good at going, I need a gag here. And I recently was doing this thing uh, for a YouTube channel um, where I had to speak about Diego Garcia, which is one of the uh, Chagos Islands that Mm. um, was not given back to Mauritius as part of decolonization so that the uh, Americans, so we could lease it to the Americans so they could build an army base there, but we had to evict all the populace of those um, uh, islands off of them and be completely immoral and horrible to them and gas all their pets with our military vehicles. And I had to make that funny. Uh, and they gave me a little script that wasn't funny and I had to make it funny. And I don't really know. It just comes instinctively. Like, I, I don't I don't know where it comes from, but I'm sure there should be a better answer than that. But I really can't give it to you because I like the idea that it's all natural. And when I'm on stage... I'm trying to be funny, and I will I will elongate the improvisation around the bit that I've chosen to um, talk about by asking questions to the audience about it. What do you think? Trying to find different angles, asking questions out loud, looking at people, pausing, and having it be very natural and very conversational, and just seeing where I go. But my my unpacking mechanism is always to ask a question. It is every every single thing. It should be like a spider diagram of questions, and you question everything, every element of the sentence, because in every question is a joke. Because and there is no limit. The questions are endless, and there is no limit or restriction to the type of question that you can ask. Because there might be a joke, however surreal. What would it look like in blue? Like why why are you talking about that? Uh, what would happen if Margaret Beckett was there? There is no wrong question to ask, because anything. There are strands away from any kind of statement that can elicit humour. So that that would be the only sort of technique that I have um, when cultivating um, material. But I think I can do that in a lot more a in a lot less regimented way than I used to. It used to be spider diagram, chung 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 questions. Whereas now I think I can do that on stage. I can do that sort of in my head while I'm writing. Um, to find the appropriate question for the line. And if you've got a line that you've written, find one element in it, even a word question, and you've got uh, the potential for another joke in there. There's always a keyword, you can't use and, dickhead. (laughs) And what I'm struggling with at the moment is trying to find something that I want to write about. I want to write about sex all the time because I find it fascinating and everybody like is just sort of a bit, no, it's sex. I just love... I love having sex and also the, the, the sense of apology that that necessarily seems to need to follow saying that. We're like, we're an enlightened civilization that are all here because of like coming like and having been come in and, you know, just the uh, process of sex and enjoying it together. Sure. Man and woman. All man and man or woman and woman. But apart from we're not here because of man and man. That's <laughs> part of one of the, the major benefits of that. Um, so... It's finding something to care about. And that sort of necessarily seems like a bit of a contradiction in terms. Because if you find something to care about, then you're, it's almost 
not completely true. Explain what you mean. Um, if you're finding something to care about, that seem, it seems like slightly a cynical oh, you mean thing the, to do. In the writing if process. You're, yeah, if you're, if you're processing your own sense of uh, care about something, then you don't really care about it. Because if you really cared about it, you would have known in the first place. So I'm waiting for something to care about. And that's the hardest thing about Edinburgh for me, is finding what... I don't want to talk about sex again because I've done it to death. I would like to care about... You fucked someone until they died. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I, absolutely, I get your point. You, like, you, need to, you need to have stuff, but you can't... It's so very I, hard to control well having all those techniques about. about asking a question. But if you don't have the initial sentence, then you've got nothing. Um, so it's that... I remember hearing um, Louis C.K. talk about it in... I don't know, it was George Carlin talk about it in an interview where he... he I think both of them actually, because we really learned from George. Um, getting you end that year, scrap that material, and then you've got to dig even deeper. What do I really think? Look around you. Get louder. Get more. Something's up. And like George Carlin, when he switched from saying, "I think we all do," like saying, "You all do this. I'm separate. I'm not involved," mm. which he only got away with because he was kind of a, a, a tiny little old man. Mm. And he went, "Yeah, you go, angry old man." And I don't think you know, I can go out with you know me and go you're all you suck guys because <laughs> uh, that just wouldn't come over very well I don't think um, I don't know I, 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 I think what I want my next show to be about is uh, is that idea of truth uh, in, about the idea of having all those you know the routines about slavery modern day slavery how it exists and then what happens next what do you what do you actually do? What are we actually going to do about it? You know, I mean, how much time are we actually going to spend on Facebook, and 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 not improve society for the less fortunate? The uh, specifically the coltan thing, mm. columbite and tantamine, tantalite, tantalum, tantalum. I was reading about that this morning because of your show, incidentally. Mm. Uh, that had passed me by. I wasn't aware that there was kind of. You know that in uh, DRC, isn't it? Um, that that exists, mm. and there are places to buy coltan. That which is a, for the uninitiated who should Google it as I did this morning, which is a, a necessary component in smartphones and tablets. So consequently, it's feeding our addiction to smartphones and tablets. Yes, it's possible to buy it from places where it's kind of not conflict coltan. Yes, you know, like Blood Diamond. Yes, but, there's a website called Fairphone. You can go buy a thing yeah. called a Fairphone. But I mean, it runs on no... Android seven, and it's not completely up to date. <laughs> no, well, it's more. Can. I think it's more accurate that the you can't guarantee that the stuff is fair because people will unscrupulous providers will buy it from somewhere and then you know tidy up the. I do think that Fairphone own their okay. own minds. Okay. To be fair to them, they own their own minds. They own their own minds, so they can oversee directly the mining of the coltan and make sure that it is fair. Jesus, that's a good idea. Fairphone, go on the website. Okay. So it's not hopeless because when you did that material in in the audience, you basically the night I saw you in Soho, there was this sense of like it, it, that bit wasn't funny. It didn't work that night, and everyone kind of it was about slave words and slave objects. And you said it's okay that all of our iPhones have uh, have got stuff in it that's been you know, mined by slaves. And I felt as an audience, we all went, "Oh fuck, is it? Um, oh well, what what should I do about that?" Mm, but I think I don't know if I said that night. That bit never works. 
course it doesn't. It has to. It, I think it's worked twice when people have actually gone with it and gone, okay. And I mean, all it takes is loud laughers at the back of the room because it is funny. Just in, in the way in which if you relate it to other bits in the show that get laughs, the structure of joke and the quality therein involving juxtapositions and bits, it does work as humour. It's just too tense to laugh about. So it is funny. Uh, and I think it is a bit that people will remember obviously because you've been mining coltan and I think people probably laugh about it or at least satisfied by it the next day or in the subsequent days yeah. afterwards. I think it's just... And also, I think, interestingly, if you were watching it alone in your flat on YouTube, you would laugh because you wouldn't have the sense of community around you and that sense of shared judgment. Um, I think it's a lot easier to laugh at stuff like that. Like, but it implicates material. us, doesn't it? It implicates the audience. It's yeah, not just yeah. like you. Hey, you guys are a bit racist without admitting it. It's mm. like you're you bought something. You were complicit in slavery. slavery. Yeah, and that's. But your instinct that. is not to go. I can't make this funny. They never laugh. But to go, no, it works, and it has value beyond whether or not they laugh. Yeah, of course it does. But it, but it still works. It's still, still stand up comedy. It's still a bit of comedy. You can't, you know, if you are sitting there to judge the quality of comedians with a, a decibel meter, then, you know, you're not very good at judging. Comedy is an art form. It's like, it has, it, of course, it elicits a reaction that dictates the rhythm of it. But a, a judge, a, a bit of material is not as good as just how much laughter comes out of you. There's a satisfaction beyond the immediacy of laughter to be taken from comedy. Like, you know, the, the, some of the, I've seen some shows in Edinburgh that I've, I've laughed at all the way through and then been satisfied and gone. Then I've seen other shows in Edinburgh where I've absolutely lost my mind laughing and gone, wow, well, that was a nice hour. It's the difference between, you know, it, it, I don't know, I think that's a bit of a bullshit um, analogy. But, like, Well, I don't know, entertainment and art. I've heard you talk about that on this podcast before. Um, entertainment is for now, and it's like to stop us from going home and beating each other up, and it just exists so that you have a nice time in the moment. In the same way that I will play FIFA or Football Manager or watch Location, Location, Location or The Great British Bake Off or Strictly Come Dancing. That is not doing anything for Alfie when, oh, for me when I'm 33 years old. That's just for now to pass a little bit of time so I can get through time before I die, just... Bye bye time, and that's what you know. A great entertainment you can have an attachment beyond that too, but it's more difficult to garner. Whereas art has a purpose and is soul nourishing, consciousness raising, and is just a different thing. Thanks, man. So that was Alfie. I just, I do, I love him. I just love him to bits, and uh, he frustrates me and tickles my fancy. In equal measure. Um, and of course, I'm jealous because he's got a baby. Ah, oh, stupid Alfie. Um, so, I, I didn't mean stupid. Oh, dear. If you know him, that's going to sound very bad. But <laughs> the point is, I meant I'm jealous of him having a baby. Um, so, that's all for now. I'm, I'm recording two shows this week. One with Katie Wicks. Fabulous Katie Wicks, who you'll know from Anna and Katie, off of the telly. Uh, and also she's done loads and loads of brilliant uh, uh, comedy acting. She's released a book of comic monologues for girls, and she was also someone that I was at uh, drama school with for a, for a brief nine-month period. Um, so uh, Katie and I will be having lots of fun, I'm sure. That's going to happen later this week. And finally, you've requested him, I know, I know, and uh, he's been an early, 
early supporter of the show. He's he's uh, he's a big listener and a friend of the show. Uh, and I've been meaning to get him on for ages. I'm recording Tom Tuck later this week as well. So hopefully we shall bang those out over the next couple of weeks. And uh, whilst I'm away, you can hear me smarming and swanking around about how I'm having a brilliant time in the Antipodes. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>